I think if you move through a country slowly, you see things in a completely different way. And of course, I was immersed in the. I was living in America, you know, so it was it was my life. I wasn't on a holiday, you know, or anything like that. And I don't think you can fail to become immersed in their triumphs, their tragedies, you know, their problems, their good points, you know. And so I just sort of felt like I was this, you know, I don't almost like a a pill camera moving through the bowels of America, you know, seeing seeing all the good bits, you know. And uh, but the one thing with me is when I got to one end, I turned around and went back the other way. <laughs> From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Rob Pope. Rob is a graduate of the Royal Veterinary College in London. He's an ER vet, winner of the Liverpool Marathon, qualifier for the Australian Olympic Marathon team, ultra athlete, and the first man to compete the Forrest Gump run across America. His journey took him across the US 4.77 times, covering over 15,700 miles and earning a Guinness World Record along the way. In 2021, he released his book documenting the journey, which I highly recommend, called Becoming Forest. He's also finished as the top Northern European in the Marathon de Sable in the Sahara Desert, billed as one of the world's toughest foot races, and that was despite developing pneumonia during the penultimate stage. To date, his incredible efforts have raised way more than £100,000 for those charities. Rob also hosts the Red Bull podcast called How to Be Superhuman, where he chats to other similarly insanely brilliant, or perhaps brilliantly insane, endurance athletes of all backgrounds to hear what makes them superhuman. Oh, and in addition to his veterinary degree, he also holds a degree in veterinary pathology and a PhD in veterinary medicine. Now, before we jump into the episode, I'd like to invite you to join something that can help you get ahead in your career as a vet. We all know that imposter syndrome, burnout, and angry clients are real, causing many vets to leave their jobs and careers. But what you might not know is there is a community where you can learn the essential life skills needed to be a great GP vet, a place where you can access mentors, view jobs from practices that care about culture, and read and listen to new weekly articles and podcasts dedicated to your successful career. That place is called VetX, and you can access all of the resources including a career planning tool, 14 hours of accredited education, hundreds of articles and live mentor Q&A sessions, plus earn swag and more. Join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better by going to vetxinternational.com today. Registration is free, so go there now. Well, not now. Listen to the show just now and do that afterwards. Now back to the show. I have wanted to do this interview since I first heard about Rob's crazy adventures back in 2017. Fast forward five years and I am delighted to bring you this episode. Despite his talent as both a runner writer and podcaster rob is as humble as they come if you like running you're going to love this episode if you need a lift rob is your walking pep talk and if you just love some vet life philosophy from two dudes with weird accents we have definitely got you covered so enjoy this my conversation with the superhuman running machine dr rob pope rob pope welcome to blunt dissection it's amazing to have you on the show cheers man thanks for having me this is one of the most challenging bit of research is that projects I did in prep for this because I almost certainly have missed about 10 things here but we've got on your list of sort of accolades veterinarian runner podcast show host charity fundraising guy father husband there's a lot which makes this possibly the hardest podcast to kick off so I thought the easiest question would be how do you describe you 
I'm just me, man. Like sort of uh, that that nice little list of things there. Sort of it uh, probably makes me sound a lot cooler than I am. I'm enjoying the father at the moment, man. Sort of uh, I, I like being in that team. I think that's an achievement, and every day as a as a parent is an achievement these days. Especially when mine, like who normally gets up at eight, I know that will make a lot of people sick. But when mine woke me up at five this morning because we were sleeping in a different place, it didn't have a blackout blind because it was morning. You know, like today the struggle's been real. <laughs> <laughs> this time of year seems to change all the hormones and things that are going on in our bodies, right? Exactly. Okay, so there's a lot of places I, I wanted to kick off. I think just the most obvious one we would start with is is the running, and and we'll see where it, it goes from. And I think the first there's the first time I sort of became aware of the Forrest Gump run was I was actually in America at the time, and I was in the airport just about to leave for having been at uh, I think it was in one of the, the conferences, and it was in Kansas City, mm-hmm. and one of the people that came to one of my talks was and I cannot and I hate the fact I can't remember her name but she's quite a tall blonde girl big head of curly explosive blonde hair in her head and she came up to me and said I really like your podcast you should have one of my friends went went to vet school with on he's is this guy called Rob and he's running across America I was like what is a guy running across America and I think maybe you're only on the first or the second leg of the run at that point and me being my sketchy self didn't actually get anything together to get in touch with you until you'd completed the run by which, and I was, th- I kept thinking, I wonder whatever happened to that guy. And then I look back and I'm like, holy shit, he did it four and a half times. <laughs> well, like 4.77, uh, not splitting hairs. Like <laughs> I only worked that out because um, I guessed somebody sort of said exactly how far across on the, you know, the fifth crossing did you get? And so I said, oh, I don't know, mate, about I don't, 0.76. And then I actually did the maths, roughly what it would have been if I'd have carried on. So I wasn't a, wasn't a bad judge. I've got a good eye. You know? <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, it's it's incredible. And for those that don't know, and, and we've discussed, Alf described in the interview, uh, in the intro, a bit about your life journey. But that's over 15,500 miles or 15,601 since you're not into splitting hairs. <laughs> 33 pairs of running shoes and I have to say after reading the book I'm going to hold it up there because we're we are videoing this uh, and I don't know whether a video version will go out but what strikes me most about the book and I want to dig into the content quite a lot but as I'm reading it I didn't get the sense so you know I've read some books and I just finished up uh, Finding Ultra with Rich Roll mm-hmm. and I really felt like I was going to puke up my guts with him as he was describing the the mental anguish he was in doing it I'm reading yours, and I'm like, I almost feel like I'm getting a postcard from America each of the days. I mean, it was, you know. It's incredible how it's so easy to miss the point in your book that you're running 40 miles in a day, day after day after day after day. And I just thought, it's the almost blasé way that you're describing this trip. My brain just about exploded. I had to keep reminding myself of the epicness of this feat. So... Tell me a bit about, I mean, there's so many questions like, how on earth do you prepare for this? But let's go back to the starter. Why? What took you to this place to do this thing in the first instance? Well, it's been a while since I've uh, said this, but I just felt like running. (laughs) (laughs) As people may have guessed, either from the intro or from the uh, cover of the book, you know, so hopefully people have got it or are going to get it, you know. 
I look a little bit like a certain other long distance runner, uh, maybe the most famous long distance runner in the US, at least anyway. And so I um, I did a little survey and I think it was actually in the Midwest as well, where I asked people in the States who's the name a famous long distance runner. And amongst other answers, including Oprah, Bill Clinton and uh, O.J. Simpson, um, Forrest Gump came out as the uh, as the top choice. And so nobody had ever recreated the actual run. In fact, like some people said that, um, you know, it wouldn't be possible, you know, that that kind of running. And I wanted to run across America for about sort of uh, 10 years, but I had no designs on doing the Forest Gump route. I was aware of the route. And of course, you know, it's impossible to think about, you know, running across America and not having somebody mention, you know, those uh, feats to you. And so it was only after a number of circumstances fell into place that the well-researched route that I'd looked at, I just started thinking more and more that I might have a pop at it. And the final spare for it was basically hearing that somebody had done it and feeling like sick to the pit of my stomach. But then only I I found out that he'd only, in inverted commas, it's still a run of around 4,000 miles, had done the second leg, which is from Santa Monica to Maine. Uh, Possibly like, you know, the most iconic one, I would say, you know. And um, and then I was just like, I've just got to do it because the way that's affected me now you know, so when somebody does it for real and I've thought about doing it, then that's a missed opportunity. And so the reason why I was prepared to commit to something like this, you know, when are you going to do so? I was always going to run for charity um, for the like the America run. And I always wanted to run for the World Wildlife Fund because my mum adopted a tiger for me when I was like, uh, I think it was my 21st birthday. And then I thought, you know, sort of, that would be a great thing to do something for in the future. Now, I'd actually raised a fair bit for charity in the past. Uh, I'd run for Get Kids Going, a charity designed to help like sort of, uh, like sort of you know, like differently able kids get into sport. And also, unfortunately, for Macmillan Cancer Nurses, I say unfortunately because the reason why I did it, they'd looked after a lot of my family and eventually they looked after my mum before she passed away. And she said to do one thing in my life that made a difference. And so that was the whole thing. And I said, well, let's do something big. You know, let's do that. And let's do something that's unique if I'm going to run across America. So I looked at different routes. And every now and again, I'd be thinking, just do the Forest Gump route. Just get as far as you can. And there's a lovely bit. Because you asked me why I was running. And, of course, that's what Forrest replies. Now, in the film, he's asked, are you running for world peace, for women's rights, for the homeless, for the environment or for animals? Now, WWF took care of two of those things and another charity called Peace Direct, which is like a, a charity that tries to stop conflict before it happens. Like, you know, God knows we know the governments are not successful at doing it. But quite often, a lot of things, especially in sort of the lesser developed countries, start from something so small, either lack of empowerment of women. You know, war is a massive cause of homelessness, you know. And so I just thought this charity is perfect. And between the two of them, I had like two massive underpinnings for the central thing that my mum had set me. And, you know, Obviously, sort of, you know, we, we know the, the general sort of theme of your podcast as well. And being a vet, 
uh, I thought I was maybe going to make a difference when I did my PhD. I did it in like sort of vaccine development in a pestipeti ruminant virus. And I, I like to hope that I've made a tiny ripple in someone's life somewhere but I just miss the clinical stuff too much and even though I thought oh this could be where I make my difference I just knew that it wouldn't have been long term for me and um, I didn't go looking to make that difference it was just eventually as I said like everything sort of fell into place and I was just like hang on and it was only really once I had everything planned that I then had the light bulb moment just goes hang on this could be the thing if I really go for this then that would fulfill that, you know, sort of a, you know, quest somehow. All the bits sort of came together yeah. around a, a central thing. I think that's kind of incredible. Why America? I get the sense that there's, you know, yes, the run is there, but I get the sense there's a, and maybe it's just because you've traversed it so much, but I got the sense of a, almost a deeper connection with the land, with the place itself. Yeah, like sort of, yeah. You know, just like pop culture stuff, I'm massively interested in my, my music and films and stuff. I wouldn't have ever called myself like sort of, you know, I don't know if the word is an America file or whatever like that, you know, but I, I'm sure there is a word. I'll be a reminder of that at some point in the future. But um, the main reason why I wanted to run across America in particular was after I read a book by a chap called Nick Baldock. And I sent him an email about 10 years before I actually set foot in Mobile to start the run. When I'd already planned to go from Long Beach, California to Long Beach, New York. And I, the title of the email I sent him was Forrest Gump 2. So another example, even though I wasn't thinking about doing the Forrest Gump route at that point, you can't get away from this, like, you know, colossal figure in transcontinental running, you know. <laughs> And the way he described the landscape, you know, sort of, especially like places that people would think were naturally boring, like Nebraska, you know, I was just like, it just sounds great. And um, like, there's one place I was super excited to go to. It didn't sound boring. It sounded like the greatest place on earth when he went to a, like, sort of a Lake Tahoe, sort of in, in California. And just the way he just described the light and you know sort of the, the feeling he got when I was there I actually diverted my route a little bit to make sure I got there and you know I felt the same thing and I think if you move through a country slowly you see things in a completely different way and of course I was immersed in there I was living in America you know sort of it was it was my life I wasn't on a holiday you know or anything like that and I don't think you can fail to become immersed in there triumphs their tragedies you know their problems their good points you know and so I just sort of felt like I was this you know I don't almost like a a pill camera moving through the bowels of America you know seeing seeing all the good bits you know and uh but the one thing for me is when I got to one end I turned around and went back the other way thank <laughs> oh so I don't want you to answer this I'm sort of you know, sort of magnetically and horrifically drawn to asking about where's the sphincter. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't want anywhere to get labelled as that. By no, you, so. well, it, it wouldn't be, but I've got a good sort of answer for it. Certainly, where I became most—I don't know—most tied to my own sphincter was when I was in a place called Adrian in Texas, which is a place that's the exact midpoint of Route 66. So yep. half the distance to Chicago, half the distance to Santa Monica. And I'd had a like a Dairy Queen chicken sandwich that day. 
and and also a gas station hot dog. So I'll never know which was the culprit. You know, I'd like to hope it was neither, just touching the wrong doorknob. And yeah, I had like sort of five days worth of food poisoning where I lost like sort of uh, 10% of my body weight, you know. <laughs> I was only sick twice. And so you can guess where the weight got lost. Got it. I'm picking up what you're putting down or yeah. not or washing away. <laughs> <laughs> no put bag required there. It's still hard to get away from the fact that, you know, telling food poisoning stories is one thing, but you're still running like more than a marathon and a half at the same time as enduring that, which is, it just blows my mind. The story I think that tickled me the most, and I think this just speaks to my British humor or just base vulgarity or just childishness is the, and I, I assume it must have been about the same place that perhaps you're talking about. And the, the guy who's you had to sort of literally sort of not break into, but just <laughs> find to, to, could do your ablutions as it were and yeah. i wonder if you could talk us through that one it was also in texas to be fair if i think about it at least probably 10 percent of my total miles were in texas you know the first right. time i crossed texas i think it was 893 miles from uh, beaumont in the east to el paso via houston and austin yeah, oil country well it's longer than land's end john O'Groats, and so you know yeah. it's like you're like sort of like sort of continental and, and stateside sort of listeners, that's the distance from the most northern point of Scotland to the most like southerly point of England, you know, the whole of the UK effectively. And, yeah, so this is just a country, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of a, 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 in, in Texas you can fit, the you know, that country 2.36 times in in terms of area. So then, yeah, I went across a further two times. And the second time it was post-cotton uh, so a harvest season and so the fields were completely bare it was in in on the plains so like absolutely dead flat no trees and probably just because of the amount of food and like sort of fizzy drinks I was taking in I got a bit caught short and there was absolutely nothing to hide behind and so I made my way like sort of very gingerly to three houses and it was a bit like sort of um you know sort of the three little pigs like so I only got joy at the third house but (laughs) You were running with your knees together. Yeah, but, yeah, no, exactly. Like a fellow who's in his like, sort of, uh, late 70s, early 80s, who had basically built those three houses. He was a cotton farmer. I asked him, could I use his bathroom? And so he, he said, yeah, great. And I, w- I went in and then I was like looking around his bathroom, trying to find some toilet paper and I couldn't find any anywhere. And so I go and say, hey, mate, can you, uh, have you got any? And then he just like, had in like a little tea cozy type thing at the side of his toilet but of course now you know he knew exactly what I were you know we're all fellas you'd only ask for toilet paper for one reason and I'm in there for like trying to be as quick as I can you know Steve and then I just head out the door sort of head down and as I'm going past I thank him and he goes sit down I want to talk to you and so I sit down he just goes do you know who you remind me of and I was just like uh no and he goes do you know the movie Forrest Gump? And I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, funny you ask that, you know, because, and then I explained, we just went, because last night I sit down, people said I should watch this movie, and I sat down and I watched it for the first time last night. And when you came at my door, I thought, this fella looks like Forrest Gump. And now I'm going to have to tell my kids that Forrest Gump came and took a dump in my <laughs> in my bathroom and they've been trying to put me in a home for years. So that'll be the end of me. <laughs> but 
So I'm just really hoping, like, sort of, you know, if poor old Gerald actually got put in a home, that sort of his, his son or his daughter will find this, um, you know, this book and go, oh, my God, we need to get pops out of the home. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. All right, I'm going to move it away from poo stories since there's much more to talk about. So you you rather like rather like Forrest, and I suppose that every bit of history has its is it bits and bobs going on. But obviously, in the, in the movie, he's depicted as as sort of there's just the world is changing around them, and yeah, one of the almost wonderful things is the simplicity of the character and him not and just taking life as it kind of comes. You obviously were running. And you split this, split it up into stages to you know, make sure you could renew your visa, etc. Mm-hmm. Presumably to let your body in some way recover from the huge amount of punishment you were dishing out to it. Oh no way, man! That that made it worse. Like, did it? If I was giving anyone advice to do this again, uh, apart from don't. <laughs> if it's somebody really wants to do, I would definitely <laughs> recommend it because it's great. But be American and be independently wealthy because I was neither, and like I would come back to the UK basically. I'd get about five because they reckon if you stay there for six months on the nose, that pretty much is a massive red flag to immigration. So I would maybe leave it like five months, three weeks, five months, one week. And then you're meant to stay out of the country for the equivalent amount of time, really. And of course, I couldn't do that because then the run just doesn't become what I wanted it to be. And so then I would go home for like two, three weeks. I would like work like as much as I could. I would go down from running like 340, 50 miles a week down to like maybe 30. I would still be eating or wanting to eat 5,000, 6,000 calories a day. I would go from like sort of 140 pounds or 63 kilos, like up to probably about like 156 or, you know, so whatever that is in kilos, 70, something like that. And I would just put on so much weight, I would lose all the condition. And the first three weeks of the run are really, really hard. And if anyone was ever running across the States or doing something similar, and they had a conversation with me, like sort of, you know, three weeks in saying they were thinking about quitting, I would just beg them to go on a few weeks more because that's the worst bit. And then I would be presented with that a few times, you know, sort of. um, So I had to break after L.A., mostly because I had no real confidence or wish to tempt fate that I was going to, you know, sort of go. You know, I, I just thought that that was going to be me, one crossing, and that yep. would be it. But then I could go on, so I did go on. So initially I only had that 90-day visa. And then so I'd go straight back to the embassy in London. I said, right, come on, give me the big one. And so um, you can get a six-month visa, but if you extend it to a year, you can only do it when you're out there. You're not allowed to do it sort of in advance. And if they refuse your extension, not only do they refuse your extension, that's your visa gone. They just literally say you've got 14 days to get out of the country. So yeah. I, I just thought I'd rather do it under the radar and take my chances every time when I come back into immigration, you know, and then uh, got away with it. Yeah. The worst time was when I came back in um, after Chicago, which is my second uh, time I went home. And a uh, fella says, purpose of your visit. And I'm like, I was dressed up in pretty much exactly the same outfit from the cover of that book for immigration purposes, just because I knew I was going to get some trouble. And uh, so like red track top, you know, so blue track pants, the cap and a burgeoning beard and hair. And so I said, yeah, I'm running across America. And he just looks at me. And I go, like Forrest Gump. And he 
like raises an eyebrow I'm like like the movie and he goes I don't know it describe it to me and he was like so just a little bit younger than me and I was just like mate do you not know about this and uh, so he let me through and then when I next got through to it and another level of immigration I think this is like customs the guy is just just like excuse me do you mind if we like take your photo and like <laughs> get your details because like this looks cool <laughs> it's so variable the people you get as you're going into customs as to whether they've got like any a box of chocolates mate <laughs> this will give me because this is the moment i have the greatest anxiety going into america and it just what level of brutality or stupidity or loveliness you're going to get from the but there's there's not an awful lot of the the good ones. It's, it feels like there's always hazelnut whips. Well, it's because there's just way too many of them. So many idiots, there, man. But I don't know if you've ever had this problem. The first time I ever did Boston Marathon, obviously I've got a bit of an accent, so some people would struggle to understand me, you know. And the chap sort of asked me what my occupation is, and I go a vet, and he goes, "What's your occupation?" I go a vet. And he goes, "What is your occupation?" I went, "I am a vet," and he went. What war? <laughs> and I was just like, oh, no, sorry, mate. Uh, a, a veterinarian, you know, that's me. And it's just like, oh, okay, you know. I did think about making a joke about the war, but then I felt it was probably uh, best not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's you getting the cavity search right away, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> that happens a lot in America, though. I was sat in the airport about to fly home uh, about 10 days ago. And so I had a, my cap on and it's got Vex written on the cap and somebody walked past me and he, he said, um, Iraq? And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Iraq? Iraq? And he said, yeah, your, your cap. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm a veterinarian. Or somebody somebody walks up and go, and they shake your hand and go, thank you for your service. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You're what? like, that'd be 45 kids, please, mate. <laughs> Couldn't really remember looking after your pet, but yeah. thanks very much. Very yeah. nice. It does sort of make you feel a little bit rubbish, doesn't it? You know, generally we're in an industry where, you know, most of the time we can feel quite good about what we do. And then that happens and you're just going to go, oh, okay, I haven't done that much. (laughs) Nobody nobody shot at me. Sorry. You know, as you were traveling across America, there was quite, you saw your own version of change and Mm -hmm. political change and things like that. And what we get broadcast or, or outside America gets broadcast are the real extremes of you know left and right and the polarization there what were your sort of biggest sort of takeaways or favorite takeaways or what did you learn about the people in the land that will kind of live with you that maybe we don't know obviously we get that sort of extreme sort of version over in like the nature of sort of our media mostly in the uk like we're probably fairly left-leaning so i would say the vast majority of uk people who went over to america would think like trump was an idiot and you know i ain't getting into the whys and wherefores of whether he was or whether he wasn't but like unfortunately sort of that is that that extreme sort of reporting is the same in the states albeit fairly even-handed and so i did make a point of trying to watch the others sort of uh news but you were generally like sort of when you know, sort of your team was like sort of speaking, you were actually just thinking, oh, guys, you're not making us look good here. And then when the other team was speaking, you'd be like, well, you are actually what I thought, you know. And so, but the <laughs> the people, like I ran sort of uh, with a few running groups when I was out there and like, you know, I wasn't bothered about turning the conversation to politics because I found it interesting. 
And generally, the you know the opinion was that they were disappointed with the choice of candidates, rather than it was you know the other one was the worst. You know, I started in the south. I was in Tombstone, Arizona, for election night in a Wild West saloon, and the whole result, not the Arizona state, the whole result was never in doubt. Like so, I know in the UK, like and, and on the East Coast and maybe the West as well, they thought you know it was going to be completely the opposite way. I just never got that impression. Even when I was in places like Austin, you know, sort of, which would be like, sort of, you know, Bastion and sort of, you know, the Democrats, the just you could sense the momentum. And I don't know if that was a sense of momentum behind sort of Trump, but a sense of momentum for wanting change, you know, for wanting different stuff. You know, like I've run through places that would have been Democrat areas. And people would say, I'm just voting Trump this time. What's the point me voting Democrat? Because, you know, I voted Democrat for the last five times and nothing has changed. In fact, they've just closed the factory, you know, and so they needed that sort of alteration. But I would see fantastic, like, sort of differences of opinion between, like, groups of friends. Like, I remember sitting in a little, uh, in a cafe, I think it was in Nevada, and it was a group of, like, I don't think they were, like, truckers, mechanics, farmers, and they were having like a great debate over coffee, but there was no name calling, you know, or anything like that. You know, so it was just that was what it was. And in Nebraska, we couch surfed for the um we were hosted by an older couple. It was their first ever time that they'd couch surfed and they had two fairly liberal couch surfers descend on them, both of them Republican voters. And we had a really reasonable discussion about free versus not free healthcare. And at the end of it, we both held our opinion and we moved away from it without just going like, what an idiot, you know, Stephen. And that moderation is still there, but it doesn't get reported. There's also, I think that there's a huge desire for change, even for those people who have got it good. You know, like sort of, um, you know, people do want to help and they want to help individuals and they want to help groups. But there's just no real consensus on how to do it. And whereas maybe in the past, like say in like the Reagan era, they actually would sit down and go, and all right, okay, what's the best way? We're going to win this debate, but what's the best compromise we can get for this? You know, and if, if there was a genuinely good policy that the other side thought of, they'd just be like, yeah, that is actually quite good. You know, and I wish we'd have that here as well. But now like sort of, um, you know, sort of if current government come up with a policy and I just go, that does sound all right. It actually sounds quite quite left to me. And then, like, sort of, you know, it'll be attacked. And you're like, sort of, like, no one's sat down and gone through the paper. It's just that I can't be seen to be agreeing with them or even to give it the time of day because it's now, it's tribal. And that is the worst thing, you know. It's everyone's the worst. Every Everything's the best, you know. And so, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> As I was reading it, I wondered... You know, you will know America from the way you've traversed it better than a lot of Americans will know America. I don't say that to set you up or make anyone feel bad, but just the intimate way you've traveled around it. I do feel like your opinion on it is something that I'm certainly very interested in. But I kind of want to, so we sort of talked about the why. I was telling my daughter, so we were listening to your podcast because I like actually what, and I will, I want to shout out your podcast for a second because it's excellently produced as I mean, as you'd expect of a Red Bull podcast, but it, it's it's wonderful to have one of our veterinary colleagues on and sort of you know interviewing and and sort of 
being such a sort of prominent figure out there in in your world as well as in our world is is just fantastic. Shout out to the wonderful Something Else Productions who knocked that out of the park for Red Bull. They're awesome. Brilliant. And it's uh, so if if you, anyone wants to listen to it, it's called How to Be Superhuman. But the thing that grabs me, I mean, apart from the stories, the stories are just insane, as is yours. So if you like very extreme pushing things to the limits and actually way beyond the limits of what, what we might think is you know doable as a human, this is your podcast. But what I really, really like about it, as a girl dad, as I know you are, there's a really heavy, heavy bias, or maybe not bias, but, and I wonder how intentional this is, there are so many stories of amazing female athletes on the show. And I was... Uh, Lail, is that the yeah, correct? Yeah, Lail Wilcox. Lail Wilcox and her story of just chasing down guys relentlessly and pounding them into the dirt. And I was sitting there listening to that with my daughter and I was just saying, so I'm, I'm going to be interviewing Rob, who's who's taking this podcast, it's his podcast tomorrow. And I said, you, have you got any questions for him? And and in the wonderful way children just are so basic, he's like, why on earth did he do something like that, Daddy? That's just silly. And how is it he's able to even still walk? <laughs> and my sort of interest as a as a sort of you know part time wannabe athlete, I'd love to ask a few questions about how do you mentally and physically prepare for that challenge? And you said the first maybe three weeks were the hardest, but like if I run more than ten or twelve k, like I'll hurt for a couple of days afterwards. Do you push through that? Like, what is your regime in the build up to that? And how do you maintain a sort of, it's, it's got to be partly the mental as well as the physical challenge of that. Yeah, well, first of all, you're not a wannabe athlete. If you're a wannabe athlete, you are an athlete. That's the sort of thing. <laughs> Remember, we're all competing and our biggest sort of rival is always ourself and maybe sometimes our inertia as well. And so, you know, the, the fact that you're involved in the struggle, sort of that, that's enough for me. I didn't really do much training for the uh, run itself mostly because I'm an arch procrastinator and I'm also can be quite lazy as well. And if I don't really have a goal, then I won't focus on it. Now, the one thing is if like, you know, we're we're training for a marathon, we can look up a myriad of training plans that says on Tuesday, you know, you will do this, you'll do it for this amount of time at this effort level. But of course, there's nothing like, you know, you can't even find many decent training plans for anything north of like, you know, 50K, 100K. and so. The one thing I remembered from Nick's book was that uh, he was doing a lot of running and he's um, he had a trainer at the time and he was actually doing a lot of core work and saying, don't worry about the running, you'll be doing enough of that on the way, you know. And so the only difference with me is I didn't really do the core work either. And that would be a thing I would do uh, if, if I could um, change things again. I'd be a lot more flexible and a lot more sort of strong around the the middle but how long that would have persisted for when I was doing such a you know sort of uniform activity I don't know so so yeah basically the running was just I just started you know stuff I was doing slightly lower miles to, to begin with like stuff you know I think I did like my first two days like 17 and then 26 in the day and then I would started getting up into the 30s and like eventually the peak of the activity was probably on the fourth leg because I was trying to avoid the onset of winter uh, i was in wyoming and you know it was sparsely populated and in not just i sort of um you know people i'm talking about amenities when i say there'll be nothing for 40 miles 
I mean zero, nothing, nada. You know, like so not nowhere to fill your water up or anything like that. So you'd have to make progress. And there, that fourth leg, I was probably averaging like sort of not far south of 50, I would say. But your body adapts to it, you know, and you say like sort of um, you doing 10 to 12K. Now, the interesting point, I had a chat with a, a guy called Mark Laws, uh, sort of who's done a lot of writing work for like muscle and fitness. And he, like, he's like sort of um, developing sort of training courses. And he wonders if there's something psychological to where your bar is set. And so say, for example, if you were doing a five lap course around your house, it was 3K. So you said in the morning, I'm going to do 15K. And then after four laps, I just tap you on your shoulder and say, stop now. We've got to go. You know, you can't do that. So you're not disappointed that you've jacked it in after four. Would your legs still be hurting or would your legs have only really started to hurt around the 14K mark? Because it's the sort of you're so close now. Now, of course, I ran up a, um, it was a mountain, I guess, in Wales on Monday, and I'm not hill fit currently. And I've got pretty severe, like, uh, DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, like, that's only sort of just gone today. I have run through it gently, but that's real. What you've got to realize, though, is that is a natural sort of thing. I don't have any DOMS today, and I intend sort of, you know, to do something quite hard today to try and see if I can get this little cycle of every three days, not just feeling tired. I feel tired all the time, man. I'm in my 40s and I've got a little girl. You know, so the, the times where I don't feel tired, like sort of, I'm tired when I'm asleep, you know. <laughs> so I think my training needs to be sort of measured on, like sort of, you know, little bits of soreness, genuine sort of thing, but not like sort of a, an increase in soreness because that's what you need to listen to. Uh, if you've got pain that's more than three out of 10 and it's increasing, you need to pull back. That's real, you know. But I was so worried after the run. Like, I would say it's taken me, you know, it's probably took me three years to fully recover from it. But not necessarily because I, I think, say, for example, if I was um, part of a professional sports team, Somebody would have sat me down and said, listen, Rob, a lot of this actually is in your head. Yes, your groin is sore, but it's just because it's tight. You can run through this. But I, I was very careful of the fact that I knew I'd done this achievement that would I could hang my hat on for all time. But I still like running. But right. I was so careful that I didn't want to come back from this run train i got injured lots and stuff like that but to potentially do myself an injury that i can never ever recover from so then when i look back on the run 20 years on i now think well that's why i can't walk anymore you know but now you know i'm fine i'm now in just the zone where if i can't walk anymore it's because i'm just aging a bit you know <laughs> yes i've found my injuries and my pains as I've gotten older, and this may be because I don't do stupid stuff anymore and I don't play contact sports anymore, but they are all ligamentous. And if, actually, this is really, really bad. But when my daughter, Marsha, was very little, I ended up getting this, it must have been a biceps tendonitis or something, right down in my elbow. I was like, what is that about? And you know, I drink beer with my right arm and I held Marsha with my left arm and quite frequently both at the same time. <laughs> But, and I realized it's from, it's where she got a little bit heavier and it was just extra strain on my tendon. And it took like better part of a year for that to settle down. And now I'm in my mid forties 
And when I, I'll run or when I climb or anything like that, I'm like, oh God, these, the tendons just, they don't work as good. Did you have a routine when you were on the road of in terms of warm up and warm down? This is, I've got questions around that and also then running intensity. And I've been reading, and after reading Rich Roll's book and following Peter Atia about, about this sort of zone two training, it's, that certainly, I don't know if it's becoming more of a thing, but it seems interesting to me as somebody who wants to run longer distances but who's you know in the past always been quite short and fast and more explosive as a runner to move from that and having a, a body shape that's all wrong for distance running to find ways to go well how could i get up to sort of maybe iron man or something like that nothing is full-on as as your run but but to find a way that works for my body to move forward so i'm kind of on this exploration kick at the minute to sort of look at that and working with zone two seems to have done two things one there's almost no recovery i do feel like i could run much longer and run consecutive days no problem but man it hurts your ego because i'm running slow enough that like people who really don't look like they run at all are running past me and i'm having to keep my heart rate under control how did you sort of warm up for a day and where do you sit on the whole heart rate versus distance you know versus or you just do it by feel and also warm down. I've always been a, a field runner, really, and like sort of when I like I, I am a I'm a bugger in actual race situations for just going off too quickly and then hanging on. But like, I've never had blinding speed. I've just had the ability to sort of hold it, so that sort of helped, you know, in some cases. And so, like my marathon PB was actually set in the in the Liverpool marathon. Now, I'm not saying this just to sort of blow my own trumpet, but I, I actually won it that year, and I won it from the gun. But I'd spent the ten minutes before that frantically trying to get a watch from anyone anyone because I did I forgot my watch and so I didn't know what pace I was going to be doing or anything like that I just started running quick and I went off and sort of you know and so obviously you're probably did, up did you get a watch eventually yeah like so I do have one now like sort of um yeah. for that race did you get one? Oh no 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 I didn't and I only knew oh, so you just paced it yourself yeah, exactly and I was coming down like my eyes aren't great and I was about like sort of 150 meters from the end, and I'm sure I was like, I'm sure that's got like 26 in it, but that can't be right. And then I was just like, bloody is, you know. And then started really sprinting because I didn't think I was anywhere, you know. I was just happy that I was going, I was blatantly going to win this race, and I was just like super chuffed. And then I thought, oh no, I literally could have gone faster in the last bit, you know. But um, yeah, like sort of, I. Obviously, I had a watch in the States because that was used to like document my distance and stuff. And and initially, sort of, um, I would get my other half was uh, supporting me initially out there. And I would get to a checkpoint, sway, because it was, it was Louisiana in September, you know. And so she'd be just like, you're running too quickly. And I'd be like, no, 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 absolutely fine. It's fine. Like, you know, and I was doing probably about sort of seven minute mile pace and stuff. But like she was just like it's gonna come back and haunt you and at the end of louisiana i'd got this like stabbing pain in my shin and so i'd spoke to a physio and he seemed to think that it was like a uh, tendonitis and it did develop into full-blown tendonitis with the creaking and the grating the sandpaper effect and so this blew my brain in the book that you were running with this noise literally coming from your body and still yeah. pushing sorry to interrupt but <laughs> the creek yes <laughs> it was so funny because the first time it actually showed itself i'd had the pain for a few days 
But we're having lunch and uh, an old school friend that I've not seen for 20 years, he'd moved to San Fran, came and ran with me. Uh, it was just as we were in Texas and I get up from the camping chair that I was having my lunch in and Nadine had said to me, she's like, you're smashing this. She said, you're going to do it really easily, you know. And I said, well, A, I'm tired, but B, we're not going to say any of that sort until, you know, we're at Santa Monica. And as I got up, the chair creaked. And I was walking away towards the RV and the chair was still creaking. I was just like, what's that noise? And it was actually sort of my shin. And, uh, you know, it's just I don't know if I could actually hear it or if it's just like somatic as it vibrated through my, uh, you know, sort of fascial planes. But, uh, yeah, and so it turned out it was full-blown tendonitis. I had a complete meltdown that day. Like, I walked like sort of the most of the rest of that day. And I spoke to a chap called Chris Finnell, who has run every London marathon since its inception. And he's also run across America. Now, he had a chronic injury there. And I was just like, oh, Chris, what do we do? And he said, well, I've been looking at your your times and you're running far too quickly. And I'm just like, no, no, I'm fine. Honestly, I'm fine. And he goes, it doesn't matter whether you're fine. It's not about cardiovascular stuff, you know, so... Going back to the zone two, for like those who don't have like a newfangled watch or anything like that, it's completely easy to train in zone two. What you want to do is you need to be running along or riding your bike and be able to have a completely normal conversation, not snatched words or even slightly breathless sentences. Be able to chat. If you're a vet and you need to do some CPD, maybe like sort of read for half an hour before you go out. And then when you're out, just recite what you're doing. If you've got nothing to talk about or nobody to talk to, you know, so then actually you will learn it rather than just have to tick something on a form, you know, <laughs> to say you've done it. And, um, yeah, that will keep you in zone too. But, of course, with real, like, sort of, um, you know, like repetitive day after day after day, that isn't enough for you. We'll be developing in one way, but all these micro traumas to your connective tissue will add up. And so Chris said to me, he said, you need to you need to take walking breaks. And I said, well, I'm not walking across America. I'm running across America. And he's just like, it doesn't matter. He said, even the fella who will have done the record going across will have walked some stuff. And um, he used to run four miles, walk a mile, run a mile, have a break and do that. And so I eventually come up with a pattern where I would run four, walk half, run two, walk half, run one, and then have a break. So all my runs were decreasing in, um, you know, sort of length. So psychologically, it was a boost. So if I was tired at the end of the first segment, I knew that the next one was going to be half the distance. And then the third one was going to be half again. And with a bit of taping as well, I um, went to a physio in Houston who was called Whitney. I am not making that up. And she put the K-tape on my leg. And just that literally, they reckon it takes about 2 to 3% of the load off your structures. And because we're dealing with microtraumas, it just goes, brilliant, thank you, what I've been telling you to do, you know. And so it's not a rest, but it's something that allows you to carry on. Now, of course, if I'd have had, like, I, I later developed Achilles tendonitis. That was a tendonitis in machine. I later developed Achilles tendonitis, which is probably in the top three of injuries that runners fear, you know, so because it's eight weeks out. And I just went, oh, I'll just tape it up and it'd be fine. And of course, if I'd have gone and done like sprinting or hill reps or, you know, sort of uh, like played like sort of like rugby or footy or something like that. Yeah, I probably am going to 
tear something but because of that nature and it's why actually ultra running is a really healthy thing to do people go oh, i couldn't do an ultra i've never even done a marathon just go yeah ultras are a different beast it's a bit like saying oh i can't ride a bike because i can't swim i'm like you know that it's almost like sort of that that disparate you know between actual marathon running and you know you can stop and you can rest and you can you know you can walk for a bit and um yeah like it, it probably is the future of a lot of people's exercise and i think people are going to realize that sort of you know if they like running they're probably much better training for an ultra than they are for a 10k when they get to the middle age this is good and also awful for me to hear like so i've got to ask now then and marathon is is kind of the you know actually half was the first goal but i've i've run that in my training and that's that's okay but moving up to half is it harder to get to half or then the second jump up to you know they say like the the last jump when you're doubling up tape cassettes up to the moon the biggest jump to the moon is the last flip where you're halfway there to all the way there yeah have you any advice for budding runners listening and what i mean is me and getting from sort of half up to marathon or is it just the miles you put in is it the big thing is miles like sort of generally with any physical activity you don't really improve unless you're doing it three times a week some people say twice but come on that, that improvement is going to be so slow if you're off for a week then you'll lose everything you know and so i would personally say aim for five sessions a week it's not that hard like even if you've got a read i've got a really busy life i am a lazy man who doesn't like getting up in the mornings. I've got a missus who, even though she's fantastic, does expect me to put a shift in. I like going to pub. I go the footy, you know, and so I have to really think these sessions in. If I can fit it in, absolutely anyone can, right? So you need to do the foundation of completing a marathon, funnily enough, is your weekly long run. Doesn't matter what day it is, you'll find out. Everyone says, Oh, you do your long run on a Sunday. People go, I can't do it on a Sunday. I'll do it on a Tuesday when you've got your half day or something like that, you know. So get that in. You want to be building up probably to about no more than 20 to 22 miles. Camille Heron, the greatest female ultra of all time, who features in one of the podcast episodes, she's got world records at 24 hours, 48 hours, 100 miles, 50 miles. And in her training, she never goes beyond 22 miles, you know, which is contrary to a lot of uh, ultra advice, you know, but consistency, she just gets it in, you know, reinforces that neurophysiological pathway that's there. So that's your number one key workout, never miss it. Your other two are going to be sort of speed or strength type workouts. Now, the best way to do strength as a run is find a big bloody hill and run up it, warm up for a couple of miles and then do like a number of reps. Try and see if you can find something long that's around like 400 meters, you know, ideally 6% gradient. Then the other one would be like sort of a, a speed workout, you know, so we are warming up for that. And then you're basically doing three minutes quick, three minutes off, you know, a kilometer quick, half a kilometer, you know, slow. Now, that is the very basic thing. Like in, when you get to the advanced level, you'll find you're doing a lot more strength early on. And then towards the race, you're starting to do more speed, you know, the proportion switch. And then the other two are just your zone two sort of runs, you know, where you just literally, you can chat away and stuff like that. But your total mileage that you do, should probably 80% should be in that zone two. Your long run should be in zone two. And so if you're getting about 80% in that zone, you know, 
great you know you probably can't handle more than three quality sessions in a week unless you've got an unbelievable recovery routine or you're just very very lucky so someone just goes oh five sessions is that it buddy i like to do seven or eight i just go sweet throw another three zone two ones in or the concept of the steady run which is your zone three so this is where you're chatting to me you're on a zone two because you're an olympic athlete you're having your little chat with me and I, i'm just like yeah like yeah well We'll just go up to this bit, you know, so I can get a sentence out. But, you know, I'm having to think about it. There's your zone three. Zone four is your single words. And zone five is, you know, you best concentrate. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's going out. It's all coming. It's all oxygen. Maybe the odd moan. Ah. (laughs) Or never again. (laughs) Oh, no, that's still zone four. That's still zone four. (laughs) So a bit of vomit. Where's yeah. that? That's somewhere else. There's a five. Yeah. <laughs> so switching it around to veterinary medicine a little bit, because you know, you're still active as, as a veterinarian. You know, we're on this call, you've zoomed back after doing a, an FNA and it's like, what was the case, by the way? Tell us the case. So it was a rotty that had, had a cut on a, a lateral canthus of its uh, upper upper eyelid. And it developed a lump there. It was only 15 months old. Uh, but obviously, we know that rotties do like to collect lumps. And so it was booked in for an FNA. I had the, well, the hope that it, Well, that's it, nice to someone, an FNA on a rotty right beside its eyeball. Yeah, I know. It, it was down as a sedate. And I was a bit like, well, funny that. Uh, but the dog was lovely. It was just sort of completely full of beans. Like, I couldn't even look at it to see if it was surgically possible, you know, consciously. So we knocked it out. So that we did, well, we were going to do the FNA. Yeah. And I just thought it looks more inflammatory to me. If it's a mast cell tumour, sort of, it's going to need more than just a little wedge resection, you know, and so because it was about a centimetre and a half long. And so I've gambled on the fact that it looks inflammatory. The history sounds inflammatory. And so I've gone narrow margins and undermined it, not touched the eyelid margin, which was good. And it's come back together really nicely. So if it comes back as something naughty, then we can think about other options that don't involve a uh, lip to lid and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> So there you go. Not only world record holding, and we've not even gone through the list of accolades. <laughs> I mean, there's there's from the absolutely bonkers to the utterly ridiculous in a wonderful way. I really say that with love. But, you know, from, I mean, just doing the marathon de sable, uh, like, and p- people maybe don't know what that is. That is basically running across the Sahara Desert a really very long way, which sounds like complete madness, but it's even the length, if it were in a, in a bearable climate, would be completely bonkers, unsupported, to holding the Guinness World the world record for it's the fastest marathon dressed as a movie character. Yeah, that, that's a little bit of fun there. And stuff Isn't it, and just, It's brilliant. So I think one of the things, and, and again, it's in the book, it's, it's the wonderful, honestly, it's the humbleness, it's the groundedness, it's the humility, but carrying all of these these records and doing these incredible things. I mean, you're just, you're kind of in a, in a class on your own. In veterinary medicine, there's a lot of people that are struggling in veterinary medicine. And I, I, I did read one report, I think it was a Guardian report that said, you know, one of the reasons that the, for the timing was that it was a moment where you needed to step back from veterinary medicine and I don't know whether that was true from the reporter or not 
maybe you could speak to that. But you know, there's a lot of people struggling in veterinary medicine, and it feels like exercise is something that would help with some of that. Yeah. Uh, not with all of it. There's structural things I'm sure we have to deal with. But I wonder if you could speak a bit about your sort of experience in veterinary medicine and if you would have any advice for people from the things you've learned either in veterinary medicine or in your you know in your your running career in your vet life or your athlete life that would be useful messaging to send to our colleagues to help them you know enjoy this profession because it's yeah. such a it's such a gift but it carries a weight i would say you know if, if you asked me where my needle was on the barometer to very unhappy vet to like the perfectly happy vet i would say i was i was mostly a happy vet you know i know there's the joke, isn't it, going, oh, my, my uh, little girl, little boy wants to be a vet, sort of, uh, what advice could you give? And it's just go, go and be a lawyer or something, you know, <laughs> do something else, you know. Would you give that advice? Like if, if no, B no, said... I, I, if B wanted to be a vet, I would be pretty chuffed with that. And, like, sort of, um, I feel there's there's little twists and turns I could maybe have handled better in my career if I'd have wanted to get exactly where I could have done as, as a vet. But I don't regret not taking them because sort of, you know, not just because of this journey that I went on, like literally, but like also so like figuratively, you know, stuff. it's just part of the story, isn't it? You know, I could, I could have like become, I don't know, the world's most renowned sort of ECC vet and been miserable as sin, you know. So, so uh, you know, I ain't going to have regrets on something I don't know what was going to happen. Now, like with the run itself, like stuff, it was possibly one of the first times that I was disillusioned with the profession because I moved to Australia and I was working for three years under the tutelage of Des Hughes, uh, Manu and Elise Boller, the amazing Aussie team over there, Kylie Kellers, Mark Davis. In terms of like an ECC unit, University of Melbourne, it's like what the current Liverpool squad is like if you're a Liverpool fan. It was full of rock stars and we're just like, oh my God, I'm working in this place. I can't believe it. And so I went over there because I tried for a residency a couple of times and didn't get it. And then I got the offer and like where Des was saying, well, you can't do a residency because you're not an Aussie permanent resident. You might be able to do one further down the line, but just come out. He said, you'll be, you'll be able to do the job. So we'll just have you as a vet and you can still do teaching. And it was great. And it was three years of hard bloody graft, but with a fantastic team that was just really, you know, like the feeling progression is so valuable. You know, that that's certainly a thing like the um, for for people in the profession, because everybody who's been in this, who's, uh, you know, got into the profession has achieved sort of, you know, nurses and vets. You know, you've got to your, um, you know, your, your exams and stuff like that. Quite often it is a lifelong dream and you've done it. And maybe by the age of 23, 24, you're like sort of, um, you know, you're at maybe the highest point you will get. You know, you'll get more experience, but, you know, you, you know, what am I now? I'm a vet. I'm a nurse. And at the start, we're so proud of that badge. But sometimes at the end, it's almost a bit like an anchor and it shouldn't be, you know. It should always be like a helium balloon, you know, like sort of whenever you're like feeling sort of really rubbish, you know, sort of it should be something that actually makes you. <laughs> you got exactly. my degree scroll right here. Yeah. Right here. I know. I know. So like sort of even if you're just thinking, oh, this is rubbish, just think, oh my God, I'm still doing this. This was my dream. And just because I'm having a bad day. Now, I've had loads of bad days and stuff, and I am aware, like sort of, I'll never like sort of go, 
oh, you know, well, I'm a happy vet, so everybody should be happy vet. I know that's ridiculous and stuff because I've still got major gripes. So I moved back from Australia after being promised probably my dream job in the practice where I decided I want to be a vet when I was eight year old. And the vet at the time let me do a probably a Betamox LA jab to my cat who had an abscess and the cat got better. And I was just like, this is absolute magic, you know. Uh, yeah apart from the fact that it was really hard for an eight-year-old's thumb to push that <laughs> syringe you know so when I went there like sort of the staff were great but it was owned by sort of a big chain who were all about the money and you know so I was I, I came over like as, to run the hospital and I would turn up in the morning with like sort of you know 15 inpatients and I'd be like okay who are the hospital nurses today and he'd be like oh you don't have any today you might get an assistant about three in the afternoon I'm just like what the dickens so I was like working so much my other half Nadine come to it Melbourne she'd had the same experience as I had on the nursing side so she comes back as deputy and she's overburdened she chucks it in six months in saying exactly why she's chucking it in and I just go, I think I'm going to. And then we got a last, we got a spare. Like in March, I decided I was probably going to do the run because I heard about somebody else who was thinking about doing it. And I was just oh, like, wow. well, we were going to do it at New Year this year. Let's do it on the day that Forest actually starts on September the 15th. And so we went out there. And um, I was very reticent to say why I was going to quit I wanted to I should have just sort of said because you're treating your lovely lovely staff like crap and instead I just sort of said okay yeah like I think I'm probably going to hand my notice in and I had the lovely reply from the area manager of um well good luck in working for any practices around here because there is an exclusion clause that means you can't work for anywhere within five miles and so I was just like don't worry mate I'm actually going to run across America for 18 months and then I might come and set up down the road. <laughs> and so uh, and, um, I'm now working sort of in a, in a really nice place that's trying to like provide like affordable vet care and stuff. And uh, it's hard. I'm sort of feeling that I am um, I'm leaning back towards the speciality side of things. Now, I've, I've recently done my up, though, sir. And um, I think sort of... Um, I think high intensity vetting is definitely a young person's game. But what you need to do as a vet is you can shape your career like you shape your life. You don't have to be. You can stay that vet or nurse for the rest of your life if it makes you happy. But if it doesn't, find out if it's just, you know, something else that is making you unhappy and you're putting that onto your job. But otherwise, there's so many avenues you can explore, you know, sort of, don't just turn up for the sake of that paycheck that's coming in. You know, you'll be able to get that paycheck. And I'm not being funny, probably a bigger one in other areas of the profession that wasn't sort of uh, the most obvious to you at, at, the, at the start, you know. And, you know, life and career can very much be a bit like running across America. And sometimes it is about just putting one foot in front of the other. But if you've got nothing to look forward to at the end of that road, then it becomes a pretty arduous journey, you know. Quite a lot to sort of unpack in what you said there. And <laughs> Sorry, man. Stream of consciousness, but you know. It's no, so no, no, no. No, I like it. I just, I don't want people to lose the lessons in there because they're they're, they're so good. But you know, and, and what I sort of heard there was very much, you know, the the journey, the progress, the sort of I think you used it, the feeling of progression is really important to us as as humans. Mm. But there was a, a big lot there on perhaps 
stopping and considering the options you have available to you, which are vast with a veterinary degree, and bringing some intentionality to the, you know, have a goal, have a proper idea in mind of what you would like to do. That said, I mean, how do you approach goal setting then? That's obviously something that's quite important as an athlete and, and also in career progression. But one of the features in your book that, that struck me was you seem like a chap who's quite up for the old off-piste experience running, <laughs> running, like where it's like, ah, there's just bits I'm like, oh, yes, you're just running in the desert. And, you, and you, again, you're casually talking about running at breakneck speed down virtually vertical slopes. And I'm like... I just wish I could have seen a movie of you actually doing this. I feel like I've just been like, what is he doing now? <laughs> is there a plan? And so, like, how do you approach goal setting? I would say sort of, you know, going from what you were saying there, like, you know, I'm not risk averse, but they're definitely calculated risks. Like stuff I've got, like sort of, I am a big sort of thoughts person. I, I generally don't sort of, uh, I, I often miss out the words and go from straight from thoughts to action. And I like, I'll use words as the final thing to actually get me into the action phase. As in, like, I'm saying this now, so I better do it. But I have like lots of ideas. Like, I've got lots of running things that I could do, but I need to find the right opportunity to do it. And maybe I won't get to do all of them. I probably won't get to do all of them. Same with things in your career and stuff. But like, say, for example, you are the archetypal, super keen achiever. You've, you've done, you smashed your A-levels at school. You go into vet college. You decide that you want to be a neurologist. You go straight from, you know, uni into an internship, into a residency, and then into neurology. Now, you could have a perfectly happy career path there because it's so specialised chances are that that's not going to be for everybody you know and stuff and so I think you need to have options available to you, you know sort of whether you, you know you you manage to streamline so quickly you can mushroom at the end but I think it's much better if you start from a broad base and not necessarily progress to a pyramid just be able to almost be like some sort of bar chart you know and you can pick one of these columns up develop different skills and then if if life throws you a curveball say you know, I do want, I'm planning to go back to America in September to do run from 4.77 to five, you know, to actually get to that sort of thing. And, and I'm fully aware that life got in the way in terms of COVID. I should have been there in March. Yeah. But I'm not like sort of devastated about it. I've done a plan in September. And if it doesn't happen, then I'm not going to sit around and mope about it. I'm going to either move on to something else or to, you know, reschedule that for some distant point in the future and i think sort of the more options you give yourself you know sort of um you don't even have to sometimes fulfill them sometimes there's nothing wrong with dreaming you know sort of uh there's nothing wrong with like sort of just thinking hang on i'm gonna do that one day it's like when you're gonna buy a telly and you look and you're doing all the research sort of on um on the telly you go oh no i can't do this i can't do that that moment when you actually fully decide to do something is really liberating and you're just like great and that's something really silly like that but then there's lots of people we're talking about you know you want to do an Ironman and me maybe going back to America we're in a lucky position sort of where we are able to do you know sort of exercise and of course there's some people sort of whether they've got like sort of you know chronic pain syndrome sort of you know like a physical impediment to a certain activity or anything like that and I think the advice though is still 
completely attributable to anyone. There's there's always things that we can find joy in, you know. And so, whereas like stuff, I am desperately trying to make time for my running, and I will find excuses left, right, and centre to not to go. But then five minutes into doing it, I'm like, oh, this is great, this love it, you know. And similarly, if you've got an activity, I don't know, you maybe you're playing a local brass band or something like that, and you're thinking. Oh, I can't make it tonight because I've got to tidy the loft, you know, and stuff like that. None of these activities in the big scheme of things are going to affect anything apart from you're not going to get that sense of satisfaction really from tidying the loft. You should do because it's still a task you've ticked off. But if it's a thing you want to do, just look after yourself for a change. You know, so we spend our days like, you know, nine to five, if you're very lucky, quite often eight till eight or, or worse, you know, whatever, you know, morning or night. And um, you look after people all day, whether it's your patients, whether it's the clients, whether it's the staff around you, you know, but we're very bad at looking after ourselves. Absolutely links into a question I got asked. I was lecturing a bunch of graduates this morning and that was one of the questions that came in was, and it was actually a question around how do you work on yourself as self-development when you're coming in from a day where you're just completely exhausted and you get in and all you really want to do is veg in front of, of the telly. How do you work on other goals? And I'd say I wonder what your answer would, would be to that. First of all, as with everything, there's nothing wrong with vegging in front of the telly in moderation. Sometimes like people will veg in front of the telly, feel bad about it. And then because they feel bad about it, they'll veg in front of the telly some more and they'll do it again the next night. And then they'll just get into that sort of thing where they don't do anything anymore. Now, vegging in front of the telly is great, but just sort of like sort of be honest with yourself. Like when you're going home, sometimes you've had an awful day and it's OK to reward yourself, whether that's a glass of wine, sort of, you know, takeaway pizza or vegging in front of the telly. But tell yourself you're doing it and revel in it. Enjoy every second of doing nothing, you know, sort of, and just be like, this is great. And I am having a good time here. Now, if you think you're going to sit there and just mope and you basically just come in and go I can't be bothered doing anything and you don't take anything positive from that then it's not going to help you you know and you think I'm going to do this because I'm just too tired to do anything else this will help me recover it won't help you recover you know if you're going to do it go all out you know so do it properly but similarly if you're just thinking okay right just crappy crappy day just say I'm going to do something that is going to turn this day better like Steve, you know i'm not letting mrs jones ruin my night when she sits having her treat night in front of the couch i'm gonna go and play in that band i'm gonna go for the run but the key thing is is just create the space for it you know and like message the significant others around you because if you message your wife or your husband or your partner or whatever like that and say listen I have had an absolutely awful day today. I'm feeling really gutted. Can I go to the gym, go to the pub, let us get a takeaway? If they're just the saying, like, unless you've got something prearranged, you know, it's different, but, you, you know, that should be a reward anyway. If they say no, then you need to be asking questions of why you're with them, you know, especially if, they, especially if it's all the time, you know. Yeah. And like yeah. stuff. But similarly, allow them, you know, develop together. It's just like being in work, you know, so if you can't steal all the juicy cases because then nobody else gets them, you know. It's all about being part of that team. And like sort of turn your run, my training run, like I'm trying to do a lot more at the moment. I've got semi-plan written down. 
But when I do that, I'm not like, oh, crap, I've got to do running later. Even though I know it's going to be hard, I will say to myself, let's look forward to this. Because even if it's going to be hard, you're still going to complete it at the end of the day, you know. And, um, yeah, so basically just turn everything into a positive that you can. I've very frequently felt like, oh, I just can't be. I just don't have it. I don't want to go to the gym or I don't want to go for a run tonight or I don't want to go for a swim. I've never felt like that way once I've gotten done and gotten into it. Yeah. Sometimes like we see like, you know, I'm going to, you know, it's what I know best. And so we use running as an example. That's my thing and stuff like that. And we'll be like, okay, well, I'm tired and running is hard. Therefore that will make me more tired and I don't want to do something else hard. I've had a hard enough day. Well, why don't you go out instead of doing that zone three run that you're going to do? Don't even necessarily do a zone two. Just just go out and just think, hang on, which band do I like? Have they released anything recently? Or, you know, my classic artist, I'm going to listen to Blood on the Tracks by Dylan tonight. I'm going to go for the run. And the main focus of this isn't me going for the run. It's me listening to Blood on the Tracks. And I can't wait for it, you know. And then basically running is just a vehicle for that, you know. And so... If the thing that you need to do, you're struggling to to give it the necessary luster, you know, buff it up a bit. All right. I love it. Okay. So on the subject of songs, because that's what I, I was tickled pink by, you know, you wove your sort of your playlist through the book quite effectively as you're running. What headphones do you use that keep in your ears properly and don't fall out when you're running? And do you use cordless? Yeah, well, I didn't use cordless in the States because they were going to use extra energy, you know, and stuff like that. And so I I was struggling to charge things as it was. I'm a renowned headphone killer because I'm a very, very sweaty man. I've got my first pair of cordless headphones uh, the other day uh, and I've killed them already. And so I'm only going to use them for yoga. I don't know yoga. And so, like, I need to do more of it now because we're all stiffening up. And I think cordless headphones are great for that, you know, and I ain't going to sweat in them. So that's good. So I've also got slightly funny shaped uh, ears that buds just keep coming out of, especially when I'm wet. And I hate the squelching, you know, when you're running along. Now, I tend to use there's some Sony ones and the headphone aspect of it is almost as if somebody has sliced a tennis ball. But they go in and there's a bracket that goes all the way around your ear. Now, you get these in just your local supermarket and stuff. And like the, the bracket would look probably something like that. And then you've got your little tennis ball in there. Yeah. And they work perfect on my ears and stuff. You know, it does occasionally when I'm running on the treadmill lead to a disaster when arm comes down. Headphone cable, jerks phone across the gym, you know. And uh, yeah, have a good case. <laughs> 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 but they're water, well, water resistant you know uh, and i haven't i don't kill many sony headphones i lose more than i kill my cats had a thing for chewing through head like cordless <laughs> it's only only when i got expensive ones and one of my cats grace she would find the expensive corded ones and just chomp through them every time never a cheap pair but always yeah <laughs> expensive rubber so i was glad to get cordless ones but the new they i just hear it's like i just hear the clumping of my feet in them so much Mm. so i've ended up not doing it so but that's a long way of getting to what are your three favorite songs to listen to when you're running what are the ones that get you up or or take you to a happy place wow well sort of um i would say where the streets have no name 
Um, I recorded oh, I a see. video of me lip syncing to that in a Death Valley when I actually was running to the actual Joshua Tree. Now, when I ran through Joshua Tree National Park, I listened to the Joshua Tree on loop. And if anybody can come up with a better three song opening to an album uh, to Where the Streets Have No Name, I still haven't found what I'm looking for and with or without you. I, you know, well, fair play, you know, so I, I can't think of one. So that would be in there. But, you know, a lot of that euphoric stuff from that album would be in. I had a tune on the um, on the run, like uh, Chris Cornell. And he recorded it originally with uh, Audio Slave, but his acoustic version of I Am The Highway became a little bit of a sort of a totem for the run, really. And then, unfortunately, as I was um, as I was going through Erie, Pennsylvania, the town that reminded me very much of Liverpool, you know, sort of a place that was massive, you know, it was a huge like sort of Iron Town, Erie. And then, like sort of when you know, like to the depression hit, it became like probably one of the worst affected towns in the Rust Belt. But now it's on the way up, and so I could see, you know, the, all those parallels with Liverpool. The only bad thing that happened there was it was the day that Chris Cornell died. And I just literally, I couldn't handle it. You know, sort of an, um, it was such a rough day for me. You know, and sort of not long after that, like sort of, um, you know, Malcolm Young of ACDC passed as well. And so I was in a, I think it was a Wendy's Burgers and I'd, I'd gone in. It was I was due for lunch, but it was chucking it down with rain. I was a bit cold and miserable. Now, US radio is so much better than ours. Like they got low, if you like classic rock anyway. Right. Loads of the towns, like even the small towns, like these classic rock stations. And I was gutted that I found out about them quite late in the run. And um, I was busy getting dry in the in the like so the restrooms of this uh, this burger joint, and Highway to Hell was on the radio, and I was just like, "Oh, this is so good!" And then they just said a tribute to Malcolm Young today, like sort of uh, who's just passed, and I was just like, "Bloody hell!" Like Leonard Cohen died on the run as well, you know, sort of. Uh, it was crazy, but um, I had a thing with ACDC a rule that meant I could never take a walking break or never stop when an ACDC song came on. And I like quite Fair often enough. it'd be a case where I was like a hundred meters away from my walking break and it was just going to be at the start of a steep hill. And they'd be like, this is so well-timed. And then you'd hear like, I'm like, not now, ACDC. But then, of course, I'd set myself this rule, and if I could start breaking it, then I'd break it all the time, you know. And so, but like, sort of thunderstruck and shoot to thrill, like, so it would always get me going, you know. Really? But like, sort of, there's so many moments, like, so I, I crawled under a fence in New Mexico onto a road just as Born to Run came on shuffle for the first time out of all my songs. And when I looked up at the road sign, it was Highway 9. Uh, you know, I ran across a bridge in uh, Baton Rouge that was probably the closest I would ever get to death. And I deliberately selected Welcome to the Jungle as I ran across this bridge, you know. And so you could soundtrack your life so brilliantly there. In some ways, it almost sounds... And I felt myself living vicariously through your journey, but there's so much of our youth, and I assume we're of a similar-ish vintage, that was so steeped in the sort of teen American dream that yeah. it's still a joy to go there every time I, I go there. 
and you sort of almost are like soundtracking the imaginary youth that you know we grew up in a windy wet like you know thatcher fairly depressed and depressing <laughs> britain at times watching all this california like hollywood you know, version of what life might be getting beamed into us and there you are on the road just living it it's really an uplifting read to get stuck into I think I've got two last questions and so you can go as long or as short on them as, as you have available time. I didn't want to let go of the podcast because, you know, there's a purpose behind your podcast. And so how to be a, a superhuman, I actually wondered what have you learned or is there something, are there things that red threads that tie together the actions of the incredible athletes and, and human beings that you've had on your show? Is there anything you've observed from there that is, you know, not all of us are going to ever be able to do the phenomenal feats that these guys are doing, but we all have our own battles and we all have our own things that that we can be superhuman at or require us to be in some way superhuman. What are the pearls, if any, that could be applied from, from the very public triumphs to sometimes some of the very personal, intimate things that don't make the headlines for inverted commas that you know those of us normal mortals yeah well that's the sort of thing the, the whole underpinning of that podcast was that sort of you know the the superhumanity it exists in all of us you know and so basically you have like one of the people we interviewed like i said i've already mentioned camille killian journey who's like sort of an incredible incredible sort of um you know runner tim don the olympic triathlete and like sort of not wanting to like throw it back onto me again but like sort of, of course, this exists in people. So let, let's we're all scientists here, right? So let's look at this rationally. Okay, random guy who's fairly decent at running with it with a busy life tries to undertake this task that nobody has ever even attempted before, never mind completed, that everybody says can't be done, and does it. Is that coincidence or is that actual evidence that we're, we're all capable of that sort of thing? You know, sort of one in six billion chance of doing it. <laughs> and so now then you just go, well, well, yeah, well, fair enough. But you might just be one of those. Well, sort of, well, I'll just go to another guest within the podcast, not just another guest, another vet who's a guest in the podcast, Jasmine Paris. You know, she's like. Britain's greatest mountain runner there's a chance that she could be even better than she like currently is because she only started doing it when she was in her 30s you know and she's like now known worldwide for being this incredible athlete she's not just she's not working in an easy job she's uh doing internal medicine at uh, Edinburgh she's got two kids you know and sort of and she just she just does this and so it's amazing these kind of things that we can achieve you know, but then there's been people like sort of um, you go, oh, well, that's all right, 35, a whippersnapper. What about Diana Nyad, who swims from Cuba to Florida, age 62? She did it, I think, in the uh, in the mid 2000s. And she'd been trying to do that since 1978. And like so I think she had five attempts before she succeeded. Then we've got a hugely like sort of inspirational people like sort of, you know, Karen Dark and Ed Jackson, who likes to have suffered like, you know, life threatening and sort of certainly, you know, mobility, life changing injuries. But, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Karen's climbed El Capitan, literally pretty much doing a rope climb the whole way. Ed Jackson's sort of, you know, climbing mountains. Now, 
these can't all be coincidences. And like sort of one of the main reasons why we, we can't do these things or everyone can't do these things. And also reason why you shouldn't beat yourself up if you can't do these things is just because all of these people have had circumstances aid them in doing it. And sometimes you just might not catch the break or, you know, sort of you've made a conscious decision that you would rather much more focus. Like I could definitely spend more time with my little girl, 100%, you know, and we have to sort of, um, you know, balance these sort of things. The key thing is just to be happy with your decision. And if you can like sort of happily sort of, you know, raise a family, sort of, you know, get by in your work and have people happy to see your smiling face when you come into work, you know, sort of, then that's pretty superhuman, you know. It's hard. It's hard being us, you know. It is that. Rob, this is absolutely phenomenal. And um, so before we wind up, I just I want to shout out the book. So it's called Becoming Forest. It is available all across you know, bookstores, US, UK, Australia. You've released it there. I saw lots of photos. Yeah, in New Zealand as well. Yeah. New Zealand, all over. It's a I want to stop short and say it's a it's somewhere between a love letter to America and running. It's just a, a joy to sort of wander through that. And I, it's actually, it's really good end of day reading as well for de-stressing as well. So I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Also, How to Be Superhuman podcast on all good podcast outlets, brilliantly produced, really engaging, frankly, mind-bending and just the, you get taken very deep into the story and the experience of your guests. So, you know, brilliant on that. Is there a new season coming planned? Is there more yeah. in the pipeline? preliminary conversations have been had there's certainly you know we, we've already just explained there's potentially another six billion guests on this planet you know so i think it can run and run and run i want to be like sort of the the parky of a uh, ultra endurance you know we'll move it to telly and i need a couch <laughs> <laughs> I know. can i come and be your rod hull and emu at some point if you do you that you might be a guest mate you might be a guest <laughs> I'll have a word with Tim Don and get him on the training for you. Thank you, mate. That would be brilliant. I would uh, I would appreciate that. Any last sort of parting messages for the audience? Any things you'd, you'd like to say or cover that we've not covered? And there's a million stuff, but I'll leave the last words to you. There's one thing I've sort of alluded to in terms of, you know, like sort of circumstances being right and like sort of... Uh, Certainly, you know, most people in the veterinary profession have got a lot on their plate and therefore a lot of their goals sort of uh, like sort of the, there's a separation between them and their goals. And I liken it to being a bit like a brick wall and that brick wall is made up of all kinds of things. Your mortgage payments, the need to be in work on Monday at nine o'clock, you know, sort of your family commitments, all the bits and bobs, you know, sort of the bullshit that stops you doing the stuff that you and everybody else around you wants you to do. Now, that's cool. That's expected. That's normal life. But the one thing is, is don't accept that wall being sort of, a, you know, there forever because this the wall of life occasionally does bits crumble. Things will fall out of that, you know, and there'll be a, a brick will just go to the floor and you'll see a bit through the other side, you know. Now, instead of putting another brick in that place to make your wall, you know, to keep this nice, stable environment that we value so much, there's actually nothing wrong with leaving the odd brick fall out and occasionally maybe even 
pushing one out as well. A bit of a life that doesn't serve any purpose for you. You know, you don't enjoy doing it. You know, don't do anything in life without purpose that you don't enjoy. You know, so just push that brick out the wall. Now, eventually, that wall's so rickety, you can push it down and go on the other side. But then you're just thinking, I can't push that wall down. What am I going to do? Well, once you've actually got to the other side and you've completed your goal, you can build it back up. You know, sort of like we went to the States, uh, myself and Nadine, with like a uh, house deposit saved. We came back literally penniless, no, less than penniless because we were in debt. But then we came back and we worked and we got our, ourselves back into a position where, you know, we probably built up a bit of a wall again. But I continually leave gaps in mine, you know, and so I've got I'm not averse to pushing it down again because, you know, look at there's there's people all over the world who are losing everything and still manage to smile. And so and we're half worried that we're not going to be able to have money to build a new porch, sod the porch, go and uh, go and live your life. That might be the quote. You get that on a t shirt as well. You run, <laughs> sod run, the run, porch, run live life. Sod the porch. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Rob, what a pleasure to get to spend some time with you and have some questions. Very grateful for it. And uh, if anyone wants to reach out, would you like to engage with your, your oh, family? Yes, I, I always try and reply to everyone. And so if I don't have anybody uh, sort of doing my social form and stuff, so if, if I don't get back to you, it probably just means I've not seen the message. So occasionally you'll get one 26 weeks after you post it. I'm so sorry. So uh, on social media, I'm down as Run Robla Run. That's R U N R O B L A R U N, and I'm on most of the things. I'm not on TikTok yet, but maybe wait and see what happens in September. <laughs> That's fantastic, Rob. All the best. Congratulations on all the achievements. Perhaps a crowning one. You being a dad, and uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Cheers, man, mate. Good stuff. See you soon. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Before you jump off, a couple of requests. Number one, do follow Rob, Run, Robla, Run on the socials and get a copy of his book, Becoming Forest, available in all good bookstores. Now, if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to recommend it to somebody else you think would enjoy the show as well. And if you're feeling really good about it, I would greatly appreciate leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Those reviews get the podcast listened to a bit more. And don't forget to check out our brother and sister show, the Veterinary Career Success Show and the Veterinary Business Success Show, hosted by the wonderful Dr. Mariah McCauley and Brendan Howard. Until next time from us all at Vetex International, be safe, be well, and be happy. <laughs>